When was the last time your pastor invited a visitor at your church service to stand up and preach? Well, as odd as that sounds to us, it's exactly what happened to Paul as he traveled and visited Jewish synagogues. Knowing Paul, do you think he accepted the invitation or politely declined? Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. One Sabbath, as they traveled far from home, Paul and his friends visited a synagogue in a town named Antioch. The synagogue leaders invited the visitors to speak, and Paul didn't hesitate for a moment. Let's find out what happened. I invite you to turn with me now to Acts 13, beginning at verse 13, where we have an account of Paul's journey to Pamphylia and Galatia, where he began a ministry in a town called Antioch, and to the sermon that he preached there in the synagogue on one of his early days in that area of the world. This is an early incident in his first missionary journey. As you know, we began to look at the missionary journeys last week, starting with the call of Barnabas and Saul to be missionaries, being dispatched by the church at Antioch and sent on by their blessing in response to the Holy Spirit. This is a great turning point, not only in this book, but in the history of the church, And it certainly was significant where the areas of the world that they visited are concerned. In all their three journeys, there is this one, the shortest of all. Paul and Barnabas sailed from the coast near Antioch and Syria across to Cyprus. They carried on a ministry on that island, and then having traversed the entire island, sailed to Pamphylia on the southern coast of what we call Turkey, traveled inland to Galatia, ministered in Pisidian Antioch, went from there on to Iconium, Derby, Lystra, and then they retraced their steps and sailed back to Antioch without stopping at Cyprus. And that was the first journey. The second journey, they parted. Barnabas went back to Cyprus where they had gone the first time. Paul, instead of sailing in that direction, went overland up into Turkey, where he visited all of the places that they had been on the first journey, and then pressed on, it says, guided by the Holy Spirit, who didn't allow him to turn to the south, where there would have been a great field of ministry, or further to the north, but on more or less in a northwesterly direction until he finally ended up in Troas on the coast, not far from the Dardanelles. And there he had a vision of a man in Macedonia across the water in Europe who said, come over and help us. And he took this to be a sign from God as it was. He crossed over, and there began that great ministry in Europe, starting in Macedonia in the cities of Philippi, first of all, then Thessalonica, and then on down the coast to Berea, and eventually to Athens, and then to Corinth, further down in the direction of the Peloponnese. And he spent a long time, especially in the latter city, On the way home, he went back to Turkey, sailing now, had a ministry in Ephesus that also lasted a long time, and then he sailed back from Ephesus, touching on roads to Jerusalem, and that was the second journey. 
The third one was overland. He visited many of the same places. He came back, and at that point, at the end of the third journey, he was arrested, and he spent a lot of time in jail and finally arrived in Rome as a result of his having appealed to the emperor, which he had a right to do, being a Roman citizen. So you have three great journeys, a sea voyage and a final ministry in Rome that we know about. There may have been more after that, but that at least we know. The reason I review it is to say that those three voyages changed the history of Europe forever, and they changed the history of the world. Europe became Christianized as a result of those voyages, not all of it being a genuine Christianity, of course, but it was through that ministry and its extension in all these cities that the Church of Jesus Christ was founded, and eventually, as we know, the gospel has come down to us. Now, here we are, as I said, early in the first of these historic, significant, world-changing journeys. We mustn't think, however, that it was all smooth sailing. Sometimes when we think of Christian people, especially great Christian leaders doing Christian work, we think, well, it must have been quite easy for them because, after all, God was with them. We think, well, he's not with us quite the same way, and after all, they were great people. We don't realize that they were great only in the Lord, and in Paul's case, we say, well, he was an apostle. He couldn't have suffered much. It's interesting at this point in the story that we begin to pick up a few little suggestions of the difficulties that were beginning to attend them in their work. As far as we know, there weren't any difficulties in Cyprus. But at this point, they began to experience some, and it's an interesting background to have in mind as we read on to see how God nevertheless blessed them through the preaching of the gospel at this new Antioch. One thing we notice is what we talked about last week, a shift in leadership. Up to this point, when the names of Barnabas and Saul are mentioned, they are always mentioned in that order. First Barnabas and then Saul. Barnabas was the leader. He was the man who had been active in the church at Antioch. He is the one who, when Paul came to Jerusalem following his conversion, sought him out and brought him to the leaders and introduced him. He's the one who realized later on when Antioch needed a teacher that Saul was the one to do it, and so he went to Tarsus to get him and bring him back. And when they were dispatched on the missionary journey, it was, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have for them. And so they were sent off, and undoubtedly in that order. Somewhere along the line it changed. We saw that when they were on Cyprus for the first time, Saul is called Paul. And here in verse 13, where we begin in our study now. For the first time, it's not Barnabas and Saul, but rather Paul and his companions. And a little later on, in verse 42, again, part of our text, it is Paul and Barnabas. Well, there's a change. That's significant. That's not just a variation. It's to say that somewhere along the line, as far as the leadership of the party went, Paul took the ascendancy. Now, I have no reason for thinking that Barnabas did anything but take that quite well. Barnabas seems to have been a very gracious man. There were problems. We're going to come to those in a moment. But as far as the shift in leadership is concerned, we find not the slightest indication of friction anywhere along the way. And yet it's difficult all the same. Somebody said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. 
And Barnabas had that grace, but we're not necessarily to think he had it without a struggle. So anyway, there was a difficulty. You have a shift in leadership, and that is always a problem when that happens. Sometimes it goes relatively smoothly, but at other times it's difficult. And many times in the history of the Christian church, people have found that. And then secondly, almost as it were in the next breath, Luke tells us that this is where John Mark left Paul and Barnabas and went back to Jerusalem. Now, he hadn't been commissioned by the church. The Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul, and it was Barnabas and Saul that were sent off, but Mark was related to Barnabas, and Barnabas undoubtedly said, let's take him along, and so they did, and they took him through that ministry throughout the island of Cyprus, but now when they arrive on the coast of Pamphylia, for some reason, there's been a great deal of speculation about this, but for some reason, we don't know what, John Mark left. What we do know is that Paul did not like it. Paul regarded it as desertion. And so when it came time to take the second missionary journey, Paul wouldn't take John Mark with them. He said, he failed us the first time, and I won't take him a second time. Barnabas said, no, we ought to give the young man another chance. And they had a big argument over that, and they parted their ways. Great apostles, Paul and Barnabas, who worked together so successfully on that first missionary journey, disagreed so profoundly about this man, John Mark, on the basis of his having left them here, recorded in verse 13, that they couldn't even work together. At least they decided not to work together the second time around. So there you have a problem. And then there's a third thing. It's not really said here, except that Luke just may be alluding to it, and the fact that although they went to Pamphylia and might well have been expected to carry on a ministry there, the language indicates that they didn't at all, but rather they passed immediately on to Antioch that was not down there in the coastal region of Pamphylia, but up in the mountains at about a height of 3,600 feet, not uh, in Pisidia. It isn't Antioch of Pisidia, some of our versions say, but near Pisidia and Antioch was actually in Galatia. They went up there in a hurry. And as I say, that may be an indication of this third problem that they faced. Where we get a direct indication of it is in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, which would have included this church in Antioch, about which we're going to read. Paul says there in that letter in the fourth chapter that when he first preached to them, that is, on this journey, on this occasion, he did so because of a great weakness of the flesh, a thorn in the flesh, which Satan had sent to trouble him. Now, he doesn't say what that was. I said a moment ago there's a great deal of speculation about why John Mark departed. There is even more speculation about Paul's thorn in the flesh. What is it? Some have said, well, he had bad eyesight, and he may well have. Some have traced it back to his being blinded on the road to Damascus when he was converted on the road, but he himself doesn't say that. There is an indication, he says toward the end of Galatians and perhaps other books, that he's writing in a large hand with his own hand. They can tell that he's writing it. It's a way he's authenticating his epistle, and people have said, well, you see, he couldn't see well. He always dictated his books, and Amanuensis is the one who actually wrote them down, but when he got to the end, he added a few lines in his own handwriting because he couldn't see well. It was real large and awkward, almost like a child's writing. It's because he had bad eyes. Well, as I say, that may be, although it's far from conclusive. But what I want to suggest is that it may be that Paul got sick here in this area of Pamphylia and acknowledged that this is not my idea, but something that has been worked out at some length by a great scholar, British scholar by the name of Michael Ramsey. In 
Last century, Ramsey did some travels in these areas, and he wrote a book called St. Paul, the Traveler and the Roman Citizen. And he was trying to show in his book that the scholars who spent all their time at desks speculating on what may or may not have been the motivation of the people whose activities are recorded in these books were just that, armchair theologians, and they didn't have any real sense of what was going on, which if they had gotten out of their studies from behind their books and gone and actually traveled the very roads that Paul traveled would have been perfectly evident to them. What William Ramsey suggests there is that this was an area of the world known to be unhealthy, and Paul probably contracted what he supposed was a malarial fever that would have affected him in an adverse way, a way that he describes there in the book of Galatia, and which was the occasion of his passing through Pamphylia quickly and going up to the highlands where it would be better for his health. Now, as I say, that speculation. We have just incidental clues like this, and a brief reference in Galatia to go on, but it does make sense. We do know that they intended to evangelize Pamphylia because later on in the way back they did. The puzzle would be why they didn't do it when they first arrived, why they passed right on through it and up to Antioch, and at any rate, if Paul was sick, that would be an explanation. It might incidentally be why Ramsey suggests this, why John Mark deserted, and why the Apostle Paul was so resentful of the desertion. He suggests that John Mark wanted to evangelize that area, and when Paul left, he regarded it as Paul abandoning his calling, and Paul would have regarded John Mark as being most unsympathetic to Paul in his illness, and perhaps unresponsive to the leading of the Lord, and so on. That is even more speculative. Yet the point I'm trying to make is that here in the middle of this first great missionary journey, led by the Holy Spirit, and on the very verge of what turns out to be great blessing, not only in Antioch, but in the other churches, the other cities where they founded churches in Galatia, these great apostles had great problems. Change in leadership, desertion by someone who should have stayed to help them, and perhaps even a sickness that caused Paul, great embarrassment, and forced him, at least for a time, to move on. Say, if they had trouble, let's not be too shocked if we have trouble as well. We act sometimes in the Christian life as if, well, we're serving God and doing what God would have us to do. Nothing bad should come into our lives. God should just pave the way, should make it smooth, it should be easy. Lord Jesus Christ didn't promise us an easy way, he promised us a cross. That was his way. You might say, well, yes, but I don't even see the purpose of those things. What was the purpose of Paul getting sick, if indeed he did get sick? I do not know the answer to the question, but God does. And just because we don't know the answer to why things don't go smoothly in our lives does not mean that there is no answer or that God is not leading and blessing in spite of what seems to us to be a discouragement. At any rate, that's what we have in this story. Now, I've said that they had trouble, but in spite of the trouble they had, the word of God nevertheless went on, because that's what they were there for. They were there not to be happy, or to be successful, or to have smooth sailing, or to have the elimination of problems, but they were there to announce the gospel, and announce the gospel they did. We're told that Paul got to Antioch, and as became his custom, not his custom before that time. He went in 
to the synagogue. The synagogues of the Jews of the diaspora were a great open door for the early Christian preachers, most of whom were Jews. They were places of worship open to Gentiles as well as Jews and certainly open to strangers, and it was the custom in the synagogue to have two readings of the law, one generally from the law, the other from the writings of the prophets, and then at the end of that, people were allowed to stand up and give an extemporaneous exposition if they so chose. That opportunity was given to Jesus, you recall, in the synagogue of Nazareth when he was there. They were reading from Isaiah at the time, and he stood up and he expounded the passage. He said, this day is the passage fulfilled in your ears. I'm the fulfillment of that about which Isaiah was writing. Well, that's the same thing that happened everywhere. And so Paul and the others developed a pattern of going into the synagogues, sitting down, and then as they would be invited to have a word, if they had a word to share with the people who were worshiping, they began to proclaim Jesus. And that's what happened on this occasion. Here we have a great sermon. It's the first great sermon in a synagogue that we have from Paul. And It's interesting because in some ways it's like the sermon that Stephen preached before the Sanhedrin, before his martyrdom. You'll recall that when Stephen preached that sermon, he gave a long history of God's acts on behalf of the Jewish people, really a recitation of Jewish history. And as I say, Paul's sermon is like that in some respects. And then it's also like Peter's sermon at Pentecost. If you can remember that sermon, you'll recall that Peter simply quoted texts from the Old Testament that were now being fulfilled, the great text from Joel that was fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the event that had just occurred and the occasion of which he was preaching. And then he quoted other texts that referred to Jesus Christ, to his crucifixion, rejection, and his resurrection. And Paul's sermon here in Antioch is much like that. And yet it's distinctly Pauline as well. What we find as we begin to read it is that the themes that are developed later by Paul in his letters begin to emerge. And perhaps this was a time when this preaching and the doctrines preached were emerging and crystallizing even in Paul's own mind. Let me show you how this sermon goes. It has an introduction, as all good sermons do. In this case, a very brief one. All these things are brief, and it might be that in actuality, Paul gave a much longer speech at any rate, this is the drift of it, and he has a brief introduction in which he calls for attention on the part of those who were worshiping. Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me, he says in verse 16. This meant that there was a mixed community. There were Jews there worshiping in the synagogue, and there were also those who were called God-fearers. That is, Gentiles who were coming to worship the Jewish God, but had not yet become Jews by the right of circumcision. Paul, by going to the synagogue at an opportunity to preach, first of all, to the Jews, but also at the same time to make contact with these Gentiles who had a sensitivity for spiritual things and had already, in part, been instructed out of the Old Testament Scriptures. So very fertile ground for his evangelizing efforts. So first of all, he addressed them, and he got their attention. Now, there are three parts to this, and then a fourth part, which is really the place he is headed. And let me review them with you. First of all, there is a declaration, a proclamation of the great events of Old Testament history. The theological word for that is the kerygma. It means a proclamation. 
And there is an Old Testament kerygma, that is a proclamation of the acts of God in the Old Testament period, and there is a New Testament kerygma, which is a proclamation of the acts of God in the New Testament period. And many books have been written about this, many studies. I think, for example, of G. Ernest Wright's book, God Who Acts, who has studied the Old Testament kerygma carefully and has pointed out that we find it not only here in the New Testament in a sermon like this by Paul or the earlier one by Stephen, but even in the Old Testament itself. Some of the Psalms, for instance, where the great acts of God on behalf of his people are brought forth. Now, Paul does this in very brief order here. You have to read it carefully to be aware even of the great periods of history that he's dealing with. Verse 17, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. There he's talking about the patriarchal period. All the Jews and those instructed Gentiles would understand what he meant. This is God's choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the people. And he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Here he gets on to this great period in their lives where the people actually began to grow into a great nation. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. There you have a brief survey of the Exodus. and Everybody would understand what he's talking about. And as I say, perhaps he did that at greater length. This may just be an outline, but at any rate, he's reviewing all this history. And he endured their conduct 40 years in the desert, the years of the wilderness wandering. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan. There you have the conquest, all of the things that are recorded in the book of Joshua. As he gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years and about three seconds, the way we read it. After that, God gave them judges. You have the period of the judges up to the time of Samuel, the prophet. There you have first and second Samuel. And then the people asked for a king. You have Saul and his history. And then after removing Saul, he made David their king. You have that great long period of the rule of David, 40 years by Saul, 40 years by David. And so he brings the history up to that point. G. Ernest Wright and the others who study this point out that that is where the Old Testament kerygma ends. It comes to a great climax in David. And after that, in a sense, it's all downhill. The nation fragments. The nations of Israel and Judah drift away. Finally, there's judgment. There's the overthrow of Samaria in the north and Jerusalem in the south. But it's this great period under David, which is the culmination of God's great acts in history on the part of his people. That's very important, you see, because what it says is that the Jewish view of history was a Jewish view of God. People have said, well, is the Old Testament theology? Well, yes, of course, it is, in a sense, just as the New Testament is theology. But what it is, even more significantly than being a book of theology, is a book of God's acts. And that's reflected here as Paul begins to speak of these things. You read it, you just find that word God again and again. It's either God or he. God did this, he did that. God did this, he did that. God did this, he did that. You see, it's all God's acts. And that's a theology. More than that, that's a worldview. It's a view of history. And it's a view that we should have as Christian people. You say, well, you know, isn't it true that men and women get together and do things? Oh, yes, of course they do, and they think they're very important. But the things that mere men and women do pass away. Even heaven and earth will pass away, but the things that remain are the things that God does. Because God is eternal, and what God does is eternal, and those things last. The great things are the invisible things, the things that happen internally, spiritually, in the hearts and minds of God's people. 
But even the visible things, these things that are referred to here in the history of Israel are the things that last because they give evidence of the power and grace of God. So that's the first thing. We have an Old Testament kerygma. And then secondly, there is a New Testament kerygma. And I'm sure as Paul begins to talk about these things that he is very, very conscious of what he's doing. He's saying in a Jewish synagogue populated mostly by Jewish people, this is what God did in the past for your people. And I also am a Jew. This is what God did for us. And now he says, you see, God is not a God of the past only. God is still acting. And moreover, God has acted in recent times to do something new. God gave an old covenant, but now God has given a new covenant, and this is what God has done. And so he begins to talk about this kerygma that concerns the life of Jesus Christ. I said earlier that many books have been written about this, and there is a book by a scholar in Cambridge, name is C.H. Dodd, called The Apostolic Preaching, which this is studied very carefully. Dodd studies these early chapters of Acts, the first 13 chapters up through this point, and then he studies the summations of the gospel that you find in the epistles of Paul and Peter and in other places, and he studies them for this basic core of New Testament proclamation. And he points out that it had to do, first of all, with the ministry of John the Baptist. We would say that's a strange place for it to begin. Why John the Baptist? Why not with the birth of Jesus? Why not a dozen other things? But it seems to have begun with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was the forerunner, and he was come to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And so that's where they started. And then it skips pretty quickly over the teaching and the earthly ministry of Jesus, including the miracles. It would seem that those were things that came later. They were called the Didache, or the teachings. They were the things that were given to converts after they had become Christians, things they needed to know, but not at the beginning. It skips over that. It skips to the trial, crucifixion of Jesus, because that is the heart of the gospel, and then it deals with the burial. We might say, again, that's a very strange thing to mention, but it mentions it. And then the resurrection and the witnesses of the resurrection. That's the kerygma. Now, if you look at the Gospels, you find that it prevails there. You find it especially in Mark. Mark, you know, doesn't give the early instances that some of the others do about the birth of Jesus. You have a account of the birth of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, as you know, but not in Mark. Mark begins with John the Baptist. So that's a pure expression of it in Gospel form. And then you know also that it occurs in 1 Corinthians and the 15th chapter where Paul begins to summarize the gospel, which he says was delivered first of all to him, and which he then delivered to others. That's the proclamation. Now that is exactly what we find here. Verse 23, picking up on his immediate reference to David, he says, from this man's descendants, that is David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he begins to talk about it before The coming of Jesus, John, that is John the Baptist, preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And he talks a bit more about John. Here he's beginning to give greater detail, detail that he didn't give when he was reviewing all that Old Testament history. Then he talks in verse 27 of the people of Jerusalem and their rulers, not recognizing him and condemning him, doing so in fulfillment of the words of the prophets, which he said are read every Sabbath. You see, he ties it together with what he's saying, and he's very conscious that he's speaking to a largely Jewish audience. And then, verse 30, 
But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen, and those who saw him are witnesses, and they are witnesses to our people. So there you have the New Testament kerygma. Isn't that significant? The Old Testament is summed up in God's acts, what God does. The New Testament is summed up in God's acts, what God does and has done in Jesus Christ. And this is what we proclaim. What that means, of course, is that Christianity is facts. Christianity isn't a philosophy. Christianity isn't a set of ethics, so it involves some of these things. It's possible, I suppose, to have a Christian philosophy, and it certainly is necessary to have what we call Christian ethics. Essentially, Christianity is facts. That is, it's not just our ideas about the way life should be. Christianity is what God has done. And oh, we may not like it, and we may want to rephrase it in a different way, but whether we like it or not, we're constantly brought up against the facts. And so what we have to learn to do is ourselves conform our thinking and our conduct to the facts, and secondly, proclaim not our own ideas, but the facts to other people. That's what God blesses. You see, when you go out to speak to other people about the gospel, what will be used by God in their lives is not your ability to solve their problems or to interpret things on the basis of our own cultural understanding, but the facts of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We're sinners, and God sent Jesus Christ to die for us. He was condemned historically. The fixed time in history was buried, and then God raised him from the dead, and that's evidence of our justification. Now, I said earlier that Paul not only imitated Stephen in his review of Old Testament history, also imitated Peter in his citation of Old Testament text. And that's what he does in the third part of this sermon, beginning in verse 32. There are a number of them, four in all. Three texts fall into this section in which he refers to the Old Testament as evidence for what God has now done in Jesus. He already said that earlier. These things happened to Jesus in fulfillment of what the prophets said, as those prophets are read every Sabbath. Now he's giving a little background for this. He's trying to show that this is indeed true. First of all, he quotes the second Psalm, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Here is God the Father speaking to God the Son. That is a Trinitarian psalm. If you read it with the Trinity in mind, you'll find that all three members of the Godhead are involved. And here are verses in which God the Father speaks to God the Son. Paul says rightly that this is written of Jesus. Secondly, he refers to Isaiah 55, 3. Now, that's in a section of Isaiah that deals with the suffering servant. There's no clear statement in all the Old Testament of the principle of vicarious atonement, substitutionary death, and those chapters. Isaiah 53 is the one we know best, but we find it chapter after chapter. It's on the basis of that that the gospel is offered. The verses immediately before this in the 55th chapter invite us to come and receive what we need without money or without price, buying without money what we need of God. And then there's this verse, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Of whom is that spoken? Well, it's spoken of the suffering servant. And who is that? That is the one who came to die. And who is that? That is Jesus. And therefore, says Paul, again in shorthand, but in a way very clear to those who would have heard him, this is promising the blessings of David, the blessings of reign upon his throne forever and ever to Jesus. How can that be? Jesus 
died and passed away. No, says Paul, it was written of him, you will not let your holy one see decay. That's in Psalm 16. It's a Psalm of David. People would say, well, that holy one is himself. Oh, no, David died. His body was buried and it did decay. This was written of the Messiah, Jesus, who though he died and was buried, did not decay. The body was preserved and he was raised again, as we know, on the third day. Now, I said there are three parts to the sermon, and those are the parts. First, a survey of the Old Testament facts and a survey of the New Testament facts, and a quotation of scriptures from the Old Testament to substantiate the New Testament facts. And now, the appeal, the point to which it has all led. Verse 38, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. There's the gospel. That is a great evangelistic text. Forgiveness of sins and justification before the law. Normally, in human terms, those two things are diametric opposites. You can't be both forgiven and justified in the same setting concerning the same thing. To justify is what happens in a court of law when you're found innocent. It means that you're not guilty, and if you're not guilty, you can't be forgiven. If you're guilty, you can be forgiven, but if you're not guilty, you can't be forgiven. You were in court, and you were acquitted of a crime, and you went out afterwards, and somebody who met you outside said, well, I'm glad to hear that good news, and I certainly forgive you. You would have every right to be offended. What do you mean? Forgive me, you said. The court just declared that I'm innocent. You don't forgive an innocent party. And yet here God does something that just cannot be duplicated in human life. God both forgives and justifies. He forgives our sin, but through the work of Christ, who takes our sin upon himself and suffers in our place, he accomplishes for us a justification which does not make us innocent, for we are not innocent, but which makes us right before the bar of God's justice. Someone has said that that word justification means just as if I'd never sinned, and that is exactly right. It's not that I have never sinned because I have sinned, but because of the work of Christ who bore the punishment of my sin in my place. I stand before God as if I had never sinned as if I were Adam before the fall, or as if you were Eve before the fall. Forgiveness of sins and justification. Paul says the law could never do that. He brings it in because he's speaking in a synagogue to those who are largely Jews, who loved the law and who lived by the law and whose religion was the law. And Paul himself could certainly speak about that because that had been his life in Judaism before his conversion. He had tried to live by the law. He said at one point later on, as he wrote to the Philippians, as far as the righteousness that was in the law was concerned, I was blameless. That is, I did everything I could possibly do to obey the law, and I thought I had kept it in all respects. And I had, in terms of my own understanding, but I was not justified before the bar of God's justice. And even the law condemned me because I didn't really understand it. I thought I was keeping it, and all it was doing was making me self-righteous. But you see, in Jesus Christ, by grace, God does what the law could never do. He justifies us, and he forgives our sin and does so utterly. 
That's what Paul came to Galatia to proclaim. That's the message that swept through Europe. That's the message that has transformed our world. But Paul has one more word, and it's a warning. It's a coda. He had three parts. He had a great conclusion, application, but now he gives a warning. And he says, take heed that you don't neglect this gospel. He quotes from Habakkuk, the first chapter. It's a section of the book in which God is prophesying the coming of the Babylonians to sweep over Jerusalem and destroy it. That's why he says, wonder and perish, or I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. That is not the announcement of good news. That is bad news. God is going to judge his people. Jerusalem is going to be overrun. And what Paul is saying is, look, if God acted that way to our people in the past, God is going to act that way again if we refuse the gospel. In those days, in the days before the fall of Jerusalem, there were people who simply would not repent of sin. And there are people like that today. There is the Old Testament acts, and there are the New Testament acts, and the God who acted in both is the same. Forgiveness of sins is to be found in Jesus. Justification is to be found in Jesus. And if you will not have it there, the wrath of God will come. I'm pleased to see that when Paul finished his sermon, there was a great hunger and interest on the part of the people. As they were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further, to come back next week, tell us more. And verse 43 When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and talked with them, and they urged them to continue in the grace of God. You see, they had heard it, and their souls were quickened, and their minds came alive, and they said, we have got to hear more about this. And they did hear more as the gospel continued to be preached. I wonder, as you listen, if you have that response yourself possible to come to a church, maybe to come for week after week and listen and sit and hear the same thing over again, say, oh yes, ho-hum, same thing, and leave and be utterly unchanged. We pray that something more than that will happen. It has to be by the grace of God. When the Spirit of God works in a congregation, hearts are made hungry, people are restless, they're discontent with life the way it is. They are restless in their sins, and they yearn after that justification that only God can give. They yearn for forgiveness. Maybe so with you. May God do in us in our day a work similar to that which he has done again and again throughout history. Let us pray. Our Father, do bless these truths to us. We survey in a sermon like this, really, all of human history. From the very beginning, your calling of a people to yourself, up through the time of Jesus Christ, that's the focal point of it all, down to our own days, as that same Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, calls men and women to faith in himself. Our Father, grant that people who hear in this hour might respond to that great proclamation, And do keep us from missing this great opportunity at this important moment in human history. Work right now as you have worked before, we pray.
for Jesus' sake. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1 800 488 1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.